This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Well, everyone, um, again, I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister here, and it is good to be with you guys tonight. And this semester, we're reading the Sermon on the Mount together, which is Jesus and his it's a sermon that he gave. That's the blueprint for life in the kingdom of God. And in it, he's offering us, he's offering his disciples a way to be fully human. Turning life upside down, Jesus offers abundant life in himself and in his kingdom. I want to start tonight by reading to you from an article I read this week written by Alex Sosler, and it's about the NBC show, uh, The Good Place. Um, And this is what he writes. He says, hell is other people. At least that's what Jean-Paul Sartre argued in the play No Exit and what C.S. Lewis displays in his book, The Great Divorce. Hell consists of people moving further and further away from each other because they can't get along. And if you spend any time on social media in 2020, you can get along with their reasoning. The hellishness of other people was recently featured on the NBC comedy series, The Good Place. And if you haven't seen the show, it's a philosophical examination of the afterlife and what's required to get there. The show begins with this woman named Eleanor Shellstrop. She wakes up from the dead to find herself in a heaven-like state. She's died, and through an elaborate point system, she received more positive points for good deeds than negative points for bad deeds. She's gotten what she deserved, and the comic scales of morality, Eleanor comes out on top. Except we learn in the show that she hasn't. She always expected that there'd been a mistake, and she was right. This indeed is not the good place, and she is being tortured by an evil master architect named Michael. And his goal, like Satan, is to deceive, to make the inhabitants of this place think it's good, all the while causing them to unknowingly suffer. There's some some mundane suffering, like only having frozen yogurt rather than ice cream. But the main method of torture is not your typical fire and broomstone. It's something much more insidious, other people. In this show, they cover everything from Aristotle to virtue ethics to Kant and moral relativism, which is quite a deep dive for an NBC sitcom. But there's one question that recurs over and over again through the show. What do we owe one another? What do we owe one another? In her previous life, Eleanor used her freedom liberally. She worked at a corrupt medical sales company defrauding the elderly. She broke her promises. She supported a coffee shop that was run by a known sexual harasser. Her philosophy of life was, I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. And she lived by this. And I've heard this mantra described as the American consciousness, this freedom from any constraints like the the pesky responsibility to others. Now, we are not as consistent as Eleanor, but many of us function by a sort of responsibility-less dream. I mean, I often can think this, like, what would I do if I didn't have the responsibility of caring for my young children or nurturing my marriage? Like, what, do you ever do this? What, uh, what would life be like if you didn't have the responsibility of bearing with your annoying friends or the responsibility of doing your schoolwork or the responsibility of doing what your parents ask of you? This dream that we have, this fantasy, is to not owe anybody anything, to be completely and perfectly free. And Eleanor is a type of exemplar in American individualism, something that we've been talking about the past few weeks. And in what matters in this worldview, first and foremost, is choice. 
the ability to choose what I want to do with my life at all times. And choice has been ingrained into our collective imagination. At the bottom of this is, bottom of this is a question. What am I if I am not allowed to choose? And in our American consciousness, nothing is more terrible than to have our rights infringed. This is what is raging in our culture war. How dare someone tell us or suggest to us a way to live that would violate our individual freedoms? Everything is about rights in our current discourse. There's nothing higher, nothing more noble, nothing above choice. We want freedom from anything that would limit our choices. We've been taught, we've been taught to ask, what are my rights? What do I deserve? What is best for me? And hell is other people when they get in the way of this. And Jesus flips this upside down and has us instead ask, what do I owe my neighbor? What is my responsibility to the other, to other humans? And we will see that rather than enumerating our rights in his kingdom, he shows us our responsibility to our neighbor. In contrast to the self-focused realities of our world, Jesus gives us an utterly other-centered and other-focused ethic of how to relate. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount begins with two of the most obvious commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. And these are things that on the face of it, most decent humans would agree with. Your neighbors, regardless of their culture or religion, would agree that murder and adultery are bad. And yet, as we look at these two together, we'll see that what Jesus does with the law, rather than canceling it or lessening it, he drives it deeper. The greater righteousness that we talked about last week. So as we look at these two commands, we're going to see three things in each of them. What's the command? How does Jesus fill it full? How does he fulfill it? And third, what is the application for our lives in response? So first, we'll take the prohibition against murder. Thou shall not murder. This is verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his siblings is liable to judgment. So here Jesus is quoting the Ten Commandments, and he begins with the most obvious one. The religious leaders of the day were trying to restrict the application of the Seventh Commandment to the act of spilling blood and murder. If they didn't kill anyone, they considered that they had kept the commandment. And apparently this is what rabbis were teaching people. And then Jesus fills this commandment full. He fulfills it, and he disagrees with them. He says, yes, this is about your actions, but also it's about your thoughts and your words and your heart. He elevates this command from outward obedience to inward obedience, from murder to anger. Now, anger is born of love. And if we love the things that God loves in the order that he loves them, then we will be angry at the same things that God is angry at. But the issue is that the anger that we carry, the anger that we carry so often is anger from when we love the wrong things and in the wrong order. And this, this phrase here that Jesus uses, whoever is angry with, is a translation of the Greek word orgizomenos, where we get the word orgy. So anger is a temporary orgy. It's a fit of madness. Stoics called anger a brief insanity. And this word is a present tense participle. So it literally means carrying anger or remaining angry, or as we like to say in our idiom, nursing a grudge. So the image here is nursing a grudge, that you carefully holding a baby, helping it drink warm milk, nursing a grudge, working it to make it grow into something greater and stronger than it already is, you know, keeping it alive with a bottle. Jesus is talking about a kind of portable anger, carrying it around with us, like a rich lady with the dog in her dog bag, just always with us, carrying this, this anger. It's this habit of carrying anger that Jesus confronts with judgment. 
Now, Jesus is not saying that we should not get angry. There's an old English proverb, the fool cannot be angry, but the wise is the one who will not remain so. And anger is often involuntary and can be, at least for a moment, legitimate. Many situations call for anger. It's at anger's birth that Jesus' commands kick in. What are we going to do with this newborn? Are we going to nurse it or neglect it? And when we nurse the anger, it grows into insults. And the words for insults and fool here are words that attack both the intelligence and the integrity of a person. Both their mental strength and their moral substance. Or as kindergartners would say, calling people stupid head and liar, liar, pants on fire. What is Jesus saying here? All three angers here in verse 22, simmering anger, flippant dismissal, verbal contempt, contempt, they're all equally under God's judgment. This isn't a progression of things getting worse, but rather lining up three guilty suspects, and then Jesus names the punishments. Judgment, the Supreme Court, and hell, which is this word Gehenna, which literally meant the city dump. And it's not a progression. It doesn't get worse and worse, but he's just using three metaphors that would have been contemporary for his hearers to get at the same reality. He's using the town court, the Supreme Court, and the city dump as figures of speech for God's judgment. And here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying is there is some kind of awful judgment for people who, without repentance, hurt other people. All anger is condemnation. All anger is liable to condemnation by God at the last judgment. But why does God care so much about anger? It's because he's made us, all of us, male and female, in his own image. And we all bear his likeness. And when we have anger or murder in our hearts against someone who bears his image, it is an attack on him. It is sedition to the highest degree. It's cosmic treason. And this should shock us and slay us. That anger carried, grudges nursed, these crimes... Jesus says, deserve final judgment in hell itself. Does it surprise you that Jesus, who is the friend of sinners and tax collectors, is also the preacher of judgment? Jesus is saying that our words have power to hurt. We all heard as kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we all know that that is fundamentally not true. One pastor says, there are many people in mental wards because hateful names or words are lodged in their psyche like bullets in a spine. Words that question our intelligence or especially our character hurt deeply. And Jesus is talking first Christians about other Christians. That's what he's doing when he uses the sibling language, brothers and sisters. He's saying that the first test of Christians is their relation to other Christians. And other Christians, by their definition and their baptism, are our real brothers and sisters, whether we like them or not. And he's saying that you don't get to decide who is in God's family. There are rules and he gives, that he gives to us to govern our mouths. There's no right to free speech in the kingdom of God. There's a law, a law of love that he's given us to govern our tongues. And to apply it to us now, ask this question, how do you speak what's going on in your hearts with other Christians with whom you disagree? And specifically where we are right now in 2020, what goes on in your heart with Christians whom you disagree with politically? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking the law which protects life, you shall not commit murder, and he now uses it to protect all people. You shall not carry anger against. He's saying that words that take away honor and dignity from others are placed under God's judgment. 
And Jesus is lifting himself, lifting himself up as the greatest advocate of human rights at the deepest levels. How is he doing this? Because this commandment and the five that follow in the Sermon on the Mount are other-centered. Here's the main point. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus doesn't focus the attention on us and us living our best lives now or on our achievement or on our striving to be good, but he focuses our attention on our love of the other, on our neighbors, on our brothers and sisters. I do want to say a brief word about hell. That Jesus talks about judgment in hell more than any other person in the Bible. And his teaching on hell is not antithetical to the Bible's teaching on love because love warns of hell. God does not send us to hell. We go willingly. The warning here in, throughout scripture is to deter us from going there. Jesus is warning us back from the edge. And when we hear Jesus' words about anger with ears of faith, they slay us. Few words in scripture show us our need for salvation by God's grace alone. Few words more than these words of judgment on anger. And so if you hear this and you feel the weight of your sin, if you feel the hammer of the law coming down on your head, Jesus invites you to follow him to the first four Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, come empty-handed, come mourning over your sin, come humbled by what you're capable of, come hungry for my righteousness, and I will forgive you, and I will clothe you, and I will lift your head. Jesus is not content with just showing us how bad we are and then bringing us down, but he concludes by teaching us how to get back up. This is what he's doing in verse 23 and 24 when he says, if anyone has anything at all against you, you must go first and go as soon as possible. And if you're listening in tonight and you're not a Christian and you're skeptical about whether or not Jesus, what Jesus is saying is good and true, here's my challenge to you. What if you lived like this was true? Just for a week or a month, what if you lived like this was true? You've got nothing to lose. But just see if what Jesus says about how life works best actually has any merit in your life. And so Jesus gives these two scenarios here to help us make sense of how we're to deal with our anger and the consequences that it brings in the world. And the first is church, and the second is the court. And I want to contemporize this a little bit for us. So the first one, he says, imagine you're in church, you're praying, you're singing, and you remember that there is somebody who has something against you. And he says, leave right there in the middle, walk out in the middle of the sermon, go to that person and get right with him. So if you log off of the Zoom call right now, I'm assuming that's what you're doing. And then he says, come back into church. Then come back and finish giving your gift of worship to God. And then the second illustration he gives, we'll make it wake specific. Let's say it's a Monday afternoon and you realize that you forgot to move your car on Monday morning and you get a ticket. Jesus is saying the best thing that you can do is to try to pay off the ticket guy before he prints the ticket. But if that doesn't work, immediately call the parking office and petition to get it appealed. And if that doesn't work, then pay the fine immediately. Because if you don't, your car will get locked down and you won't be allowed to graduate. Here's what Jesus is saying. When your personal relationships go wrong, nine out of 10 times, immediate action will mend them. Ephesians 4, 26, there Paul says, never let the sun go down on your anger. Do it quick or the consequences will get worse. Jesus is saying, rip off the bandaid. That's murder and anger. And then Jesus focuses our attention on adultery and lust. And the command here, once again, the rabbis were attempting to limit the scope of the commandment. As it is written, you shall not commit adultery. They gave it a conveniently narrow definition. 
which gave them a lot of latitude for what went on inside their hearts and their minds. And then Jesus fills it full. He teaches differently. He says that adultery isn't only your actions. He says that God sees you and he knows what's going on in your heart. Just as we can murder with our words, we can commit adultery in our hearts and minds. Verse 28, he says, Indeed, anyone and everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It must be asked, does God hate sex? And the Bible gives an unequivocal no. He invented it. It was his idea. Your sexuality is a gift from God. He has given it to you to be used to his glory and the good of others. And I know this sounds crazy, but that's because our culture celebrates the exact opposite of this. Jesus fills this commandment full. He deepens it because just like the prohibitions around murder, this is ultimately, this is ultimately about the love of our neighbor. Dale Bruner writes that lust is like anger in that it seeks power over another person. Both lust and anger put other people down, though by seemingly opposite emotions, by hatred and by desire. But the emotions of anger and lustful desire unite in their self-centeredness and their enjoyment of power over other people. People are used in both. What happens when we lust? We take a human who is made in the image of God and transform them in our hearts into a tool, a tool for our own enjoyment, for our own self-expression, a vehicle to feel our own power. And Jesus is saying that he is concerned with the infinite dignity of every human who bears the image of God. You are not to look to lust because the kingdom of God is not about you. It's about God and his love for our neighbors. It's about caring for and dignifying and lifting up and protecting others who bear God's image. And if you're listening to him, then this should slay you. The power of the law is to show us our original sin, to show us to the, what utter depths our nature has fallen, to show us just how corrupt we've become. Jesus' commands damn us. They are a hammer to our self-righteousness. And the commands evangelize us too. They point us away from ourselves and our self-salvation strategies into the only one who can actually save us, Christ Jesus himself. For if Jesus is telling the truth here, which he is, then we badly need a savior. And his forgiveness that reaches down beneath our will, underneath our sinful acts, and covers our sinful nature, our subterranean drives, our original sin, our depths, Jesus is showing us here just how deeply we need the gospel. And so if you feel the weight of your sin, if you feel the hammer of the law coming down on your head, follow Jesus to the first four Beatitudes, where he says, come empty-handed. Come sad over your sin. Come ham- humbled by what you're, capable, what you're capable of. And come hungry and thirsty for his righteousness, where he will forgive you, he'll cover you again, and he will lift your head. And he tells his disciples, he tells us, that we then need to take decisive action against the habit, thing, or person that though pleasurable and perhaps even indispensable for daily life, the thing that is in fact ruining your life. He doesn't say to take gradual, cautious action, but says that we need surgery. We need amputation immediately. I remember a conversation I had a a few years ago with a man who was in recovery for sexual addiction, and he told me a story that one time he was cleaning out his Tahoe, and under one of the seats, he discovered a piece of food that one of his kids had left there, and it was now rotten, and it was covered in maggots. He said as he lifted up the seat, he found hundreds and hundreds of maggots 
in this food underneath the seat in his Tahoe, hidden beneath the seat cushions. And he said, that's my lust. I hid it away. I pretended it wasn't there. And it grew and it grew. It ruined my marriage and it ruined my life. Friends, if you think that your lust is hidden or you've got it under control, Jesus doesn't advise a Band-Aid. He commands an amputation. He says, tear it out, throw it away, like an emergency amputation. And then in the long run, this mercilessness is, is the greater mercy. Hear Jesus say this to you. Don't go halfway on this one. And let me add, don't go at it alone. Ask for help. This affects all of us in one way or another. Verse 29, he says, if your eye or your hand or your foot causes you to sin, rip it off and throw it away. As large as the loss will be, Jesus says it cannot begin to compare with the loss of one's whole life. And hear me on this because this is true. I know from my own experience, the maiming that the kingdom life requires will be a thousandfold repaid with wholeness of a life with God that comes with amputation. Make your eye pure and it will purify your heart. And if you remember what Jesus said to us in those second four Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Friends, this may feel like Jesus is robbing you of harmless pleasures or of personal independence when he tells us to stop staring and to cease lusting and to quit acting out. But Jesus says it is infinitely better to go limping into heaven than to go leaping into hell. And I'm speaking to the guys now, just the guys. Jesus' command here serves us men especially by teaching us the depths of our sin, by showing up the large measure of unreality in our Christian lives and therefore driving us to repentance. Martin Luther wrote that we should not make the bowstring too taut here. Don't make this too difficult to pull back. He says that if an evil thought is involuntary, it's not your fault. I mean, I remember how difficult it is to live. It was to live in an adolescent male body. It's impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into your heart. But Luther says, see to it that you, not let, you do not let such arrows stick there and take root, but tear them out and throw them away. He adds, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head but I can certainly keep it from making a nest there or from biting off my nose. Alan Noble, uh, who's a professor at a university in Oklahoma, he wrote an article about lust on his blog, Christ in Pop Culture. And I want to share this with you. And in this article, he tells a story of um, looking for a picture for something on Flickr and stumbling across a man's Flickr account uh, that was mostly pictures of women that he saw in public. They were completely clothed but they were only of women's backsides, not their faces. And Alan Noble found himself fascinated with this, whoever this anonymous person might be. And this is what he writes. At the root of a voyeur's life, this man is a voyeur, is the fact that he cannot accept that there is beauty in the world, which is good, that is not for him to participate in. The voyeur couldn't accept the distance of beauty, the idea that some fit female marathoner with a great behind could exist and not yet be his. So he stole her. He captured her in his camera. He froze her beauty in time for himself. And he's not alone. Huge portions of our economy are taken up by industries selling stolen beauty of one kind or another. Sometimes this includes the consent of the subject, but sometimes it doesn't. This is just what we do now. Voyeurism is normal. What the voyeur spent 30 plus years not understanding was that the distance the difference of beauty was actually good itself. 
He saw every lovely woman as a thing to be contained, to be brought under his control, to be drawn near to himself. In love, we speak of a lover who gives himself or herself to us because that's what we desire, the whole self for ourselves. We're taught by culture to see the distance of beauty, a beautiful woman who's outside of our grasp, as a problem to be overcome or as a sign of failure. And so we want her to either disappear or to acquiesce to our power, but it's all wrong. The radical truth is that it's good that God made the world filled with beautiful people. And it's good that their beauty isn't mine to take and have. Sometimes he writes, I make this a prayer. Thank you, God, for her beauty and that it is not mine to participate in. And I have to pray it because I don't always believe it until I do. That's the thing that this voyeur couldn't understand. He was fighting against the world God made, against the basic truth of being. Distance and difference are fundamentally good, not bad. This is, after all, what we find even in the Holy Trinity, in which three different persons remain distant but united in love. Those differences are not weaknesses or problems to overcome. It is not as though the Trinity would be better if they could all get it together and agree to be only one. No, in the Trinity, we see that there is a goodness, a beauty in being distant and different. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in the kingdom of God, in the Sermon on the Mount? He is saying that the very life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very life of God is to be a motor and a model of our life together. To be the model, God's other-centered, self-giving love is how we are designed to live and what life in the kingdom of God animated by his Holy Spirit is to look like. And the motor, that it is only as we first receive this love from God in Jesus Christ that we can participate in it. Or in the words of Jesus, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Because this ultimately isn't about us and that's for our good. The reason that Jesus takes aim at our anger and our lust is to show us that the most dangerous thing in the world is not outside of us, but it's inside of us. By filling full and deepening the law of God, by applying it not just to our actions, but to our hearts, Jesus is putting a bubble of protection around everyone whom we meet. Because all of us carry within us the plague of original sin, a deep pool of bitterness and carnality in our own hearts. This is Jesus's version of telling us to wear a mask and practice safe six, not for our own sake, but for the sake of our neighbors. And during, during the past six months, during the pandemic, Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, has had a resurgence in sales um, and as people are reading it, they're writing about it, and I've been reading what people have written. And um, one of the characters, Jean Thoreau, comes to a conclusion at the end of the novel, and he says this. He says, each of us has the plague within him. No one, no one on earth is free from it. And I know, too, that we must keep endless watch on ourselves, lest in a careless moment we breathe in somebody's face and fasten the infection on him. This is what Jesus is saying in these two commandments. Jesus is saying that part of our work in the kingdom of God is to protect our neighbors from our anger and our lust, to be the people in the world who do not use and abuse one another, but rather to follow Jesus by laying down our lives for the sake of the world. For this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The way that he sends us out to be people who are about the love of our neighbors is by loving us in this very way. Because Jesus, when he came, he didn't come to not murder and not adulterize you, but he gave to give you abundant life 
to give you a love relationship with the God who made you. He gave all of himself to you because he wants to give all of you back to his father. And in that life and in that love, he changes you so that you don't have to live asking, what are my rights? What is owed me? But instead, he frees you and he empowers you to ask, how can I love with the great love with which he has loved me? May that be our prayer together. Let's pray. Jesus, um, your law is high and deep and pierces our hearts. And uh, Lord, we thank you for focusing our, our attention on it for these past 30 minutes. Um, Lord, we help, pray that you'd help us, help us to not try to fix it on our own, but to come to you with the reality of our sin and need, um, that we might experience your forgiveness and grace and, and the covering of your righteousness and the lifting of our heads. And Lord, that you would send us out to love our neighbors. Um, Lord, I pray for my friends that are listening in, and this is hard and difficult for them. Would you meet them where they are? Show them your goodness and grace, that you are the God who is the greatest defender of human rights um, because you have given your life, the one true perfect life uh, for the life of the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>